Section twenty of the Bachelors Club by Israel Zangwill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter twelve: A Bolt from the Blue, Part two. Not that I had not been in the world before. I only mean that I went to the continent. Henceforward, the absorbing thought of my life absorbed me deeper still. Due honor and respect must be paid to my mother's widow's weeds. They should not grow rank upon her grave. Her clothes should not moulder away like her dear self. But who was worthy to wear those relics? To whom were those supreme honors most appropriately accrue? Whom were those garments fit? There was only one possible answer. My mother's mourning could only be worn by her son's widow. Those hallowed relics and heirlooms could enshroud no woman less sacred. None but her son's widow could step into her shoes. They must be kept in the family. Hitherto I had been a confirmed bachelor. I had wished no woman's face to come between me and my mother's. But now it was borne on me that it was my sacred duty to marry. It behooved me to take a wife. How otherwise could I create a widow to be a background for those dresses? The model widow for those weeds must be my own. I obeyed the voice of conscience. I looked out for a widow. Often I thought I had found a fitting wearer for those precious garments. Often I was on the point of proposing to lovely virgins on whom they would have looked beautiful. Often when I sat with some fair gentle maiden in the green gloom of conservatories, or sauntered with her beneath the fretted vault of heaven, or glided beside her on the quiet moonlit lake, or watched with her to see the sun set in serene splendor behind the everlasting hills. Often have I measured her waist with my circumambient arm to see if she were the fitting bride for me. In five cases the dimensions were suitable. I measured again and again till there could be no possibility of mistake. Only three maidens stood this more searching test. These I was within an ace of selecting flushed with emotions of the moment enraptured by the perfection of the measurements overwhelmed by the glories of sunset or moonlight i have three times been on the point of asking some lovely damsel to be my widow to link her life with my death to be mine in the heart's beat mine in the breath and follow me to the world's end and the next carriage to mine but i always restrain myself in the supreme crisis one thought always arrived with a respite how did i know that this beautiful girl whom i was on the point of rashly asking to be my widow would outlive me suppose i took her to my hearth and home and then she died before me leaving me with my mother's mourning on my hands again no i must be prudent true each of these beautiful girls was radiant with life and happiness overflowing with buoyancy and freshness like a spring morning but we have it on authority that all flesh is grass, and we are cut down in a moment as by a reaper's sickle. No, marriage is at best a lottery. What if I found myself saddled with a woman who would not be able to fulfill the functions of widowhood? I should be unable to get the marriage set aside for the stupid law had not provided for the contingency. No, I would not take a leap in the dark. If I married, I must choose my widow wisely and well. My marriage must not be a failure." now you understand why i sought the hand of mrs carsonet after months of misery at paris and monaco i returned to england fate took me to macclesfield and introduced me to mrs carsonet please be silent miss fellowsmith mrs carsonet was at that time the talk of the town she was a professional widow 
not a raw and inexperienced widow like my mother, for she had been bereaved three times. There was nothing particularly attractive about her, yet she changed her name as frequently as a stage adventuress, nor was there the slightest breath of scandal against her, for though her three husbands had perished, they had done so under circumstances beyond her control. One had been attacked with cramp while swimming, another had succumbed to measles, and the third had won a thousand pounds in a railway accident. The curious part of it was that all three had died within a year of marriage. Yes, yes, sit down, miss. I know exactly what you're thinking about. When I have finished, you shall speak. A third man was warned by all his relatives, and the local insurance branch wanted a higher annual premium. But he laughed at their superstitions. When the crash came and his dead body was identified in the mortuary, few had sympathy with the blasphemer. His death was felt to be a judgment, as his living over the twelve-month would have been considered a want of it on the part of the higher powers. I felt at once this was a woman for my matrimony. She at least could make a true widow for me. I thought of her as more literally the mourning bride than the Congreve's heroine. She was always just wed or just widowed. Her life was like the first column of the times, nothing but births, marriages, and deaths. If I married her, I should die within a twelve-month, and my marriage would be consummated. The claims of filial piety should be satisfied, for I was confident with the opportunity of quietly talking things over, afforded by the honeymoon, and I should be able to induce my wife to mourn for me in the same sacred clothes in which my mother had mourned for my father. It was no easy task to secure the hand I coveted, for after she had saved a thousand pounds from the crash, to which her third husband had fallen the victim, Mrs. Carsonet became again the cynosure of all neighboring bachelors' eyes. There was a morbid fascination about her which impelled men to throw themselves at her feet, as though they had been moths and her toes luminous. But none had so much at stake as I, and the thought of my mother's ebon clothes lent me eloquence, and the filial devotion carried the day. When our engagement leaked out, the stonemasons of Macclesfield touched their caps respectfully when I passed. For nine months I lived in perfect happiness with my intended widow. Everything had been arranged for my decease. The woman who had plighted her troth to me to become my widow when death did us part had engaged to lament me in the hereditary weeds of the family. My will was made. Everything had been left to my future widow on that understanding. During the tenth month I began to get uneasy. No signs of sickness had appeared. I felt as strong as a dray-horse and as healthy as a hippopotamus. The eleventh month passed, still not a shade or a shadow of a symptom of a bodily derangement. I could not feel unwell, though I tried. I read all the quack medicine advertisements. I pored over the properties of the patent pills, which no family should be without. I studied the records of the supernatural syrups. Not even thus could I experience any unpleasant sensation. My head was not dizzy, nor were my loins heavy, nor was my digestion sluggish. Little black spots did not dance before my eyes. My pulse was methodical, my respiration easy, and my tongue did not wear a morning coat. I began to get seriously alarmed. The days slipped by slowly, but at last a twelfth month arrived. The townsfolk stared at me now when I walked in the street and the necks were craned out the windows as though I were a condemned criminal en route to the scaffold. The notoriety became disagreeable, and during the last month of my existence I determined to be a celebrity at home. 
in the third week an old schoolfellow named eveson called on me he asked me how i felt i said i was sorry to say i had been feeling far from ill lately he inquired what were the prospects of my dissolution i said that death from natural causes seemed improbable but i was looking confidently toward an accident and hoped by care and attention to meet with one within a few days he warned me not to build too much on that chance for accidents would happen even in the best calculated schemes i replied that if i stopped at home as i intended to i had every right to rely on the accident coming off i reminded him of what the lancet told us every week of the perils that bestrewed our paths the poison that lurked in the pot and the disease that dribbled from the kettle of the contagion that clung to bootlaces and the arsenic that was wafted from the wallpaper i recalled to him the dangers of fires and gas explosions and armed burglars and overtoppling mirrors and falling chandeliers and i read out to him a graphic account of the germs and insidious particles that were fooling around in the domestic atmosphere and which could only be foiled by badbury's coca from the use of which i carefully abstained but he shook his head sceptically and went off leaving me forlorn and discomforted next day he returned and inquired after my health again his face brightened when i told him my condition was unchanged he said i must not mind if he came to inquire every day and even twice a day because he felt very anxious about my health i told him it was very good of him and pressed his hand affectionately and said that i had never believed in friendship before but now i should carry to my grave the memory of his disinterested anxiety never say die he replied cheerily i always said you would weather the marriage and what's more i don't mind telling you now i've backed my opinion heavily i have ten thousand pounds on you what do you mean i gasped i have made wagers amounting in all to ten thousand pounds partly with natives partly outside that you will live beyond the usual twelvemonth at first i got large odds for the starting price was whatever i pleased as i stood almost alone in my belief in you then the betting became level now that you have only a few days to die the tide has turned and i have had to give three to two yes my boy i have stood by you all along he said slapping me cheerily on the back i am none of your fair-weather friends to fire salute guns only when you get into port when every one spoke ill of you and speculated on your death i alone was your friend for life when things looked blackest and most funereal i alone believed in you and defended your life against all odds i said with emotion i would remember him in my will and that he might look for a legacy in a few days he answered warmly that he preferred my life to any legacy i could leave him and again i pressed his hand and the faithful fellow took his leave but he left me food for reflection which i was not slow to digest when eveson called the next day i asked him if he was sure to get his ten thousand if i remained alive he said that the losers were all reliable persons and in any case he could recover these debts legally as a transaction was not a gambling one but a form of life insurance i then informed him that unless he went halves with me i should die he grew pale and besought me to reconsider my determination i said i had always lived to please myself i was not going to live to please him now he said he would leave no stone unturned to save my life i said that if it were saved in mere consoles it would tot up to nearly three hundred pound a year and that unless i could save half my life for myself i would have none of it the only way to prevent my death was to give me the five thousand pounds i pointed out that if i lived eveson would get all the meat and i all the bones 
that he would net ten thousand pounds while I should be left married to an unattractive and fated widow, who was not even my widow. I wanted to know what there was for me to live for. In the end it was agreed to split my life fairly between us both, Eveson trying in the meantime to increase its value, and now all my thoughts changed as by magic. The will to live took the place of the readiness to die. The chance of realizing five thousand pounds comes with rarely in a lifetime, and a chance of dying was always to be had. There was plenty of time yet to provide a widow to wear my mother's clothes. They should be shelved but not forgotten. I had perhaps been needlessly precipitate. The revived will to live brought with it all the anxieties of which the Stoics, Quietus, and the Buddhists warn us. To wish to live is to fear to die. Now that I craved for life, a terror that I should die within a week whelmed my soul. Was I really destined to escape my wife's baneful spell? Why should I be luckier than three men who had gone before? I communicated my fears to Eveson. The panic seized him, too. What was to be done? The solution flashed upon me suddenly. The mortal peril that threatened me arose from my marital relation to the fatal widow. If I ceased to be your husband, the spell would probably not work. But unfortunately a divorce in this unhappy country takes time, and the end of my year was bearing down upon me like some grim express. A divorce was out of the question. I must be content with the next best thing. To cease being Mrs. Castanet's husband, I must become somebody else's. That, if not a legal divorce, would at least be a moral one. I told Eveson the idea. He said that it was bigamy. I said that that didn't matter. Even bigamy ceased to be a crime when one's life was in danger. Crimes committed in self-defense to save one's life were whitewashed by the codes of all countries. Desperate evils require desperate remedies. In my situation, I said bigamy would be quite laudable. The only trouble was to find a fresh bride to be my widow. I dare not look for her in Macclesfield because she would know of the existing wife, which would probably set her against the match. But if I left the town, then, as Eveson pointed out, there would be some difficulty in proving that I was alive. True, I might return temporarily to Macclesfield, just to be identified. But then my wife might get hold of me, and I could not bear the idea of living any longer with the insipid partner I had selected only to die by. It was indeed a dilemma. This time Eveson came to the rescue. I was to leave Macclesfield on a pretext to my wife, who was unaware of the dead and alive gossip that circled round us. The gossips would think I had crawled off like a wounded snake to die alone. After the honeymoon, which would be also after the magic twelve-month, I was to return to Macclesfield, on a pretext to my wife, number two, but only to visit my lawyer and other reputable citizens on pretended matters of business. I was also to be casually photographed, so that after I had gone the developed negatives might be positive evidence to my identity. Then, before the news of my coming had spread to my wife, I was to fly again, returning to my second wife or not, as inclination prompted. Trembling for my life, I put into execution the plan so hurriedly sketched out. I told my wife a relative had died, and I had to go and see about some property he had left me. The dwelling place of my second wife I ascertained by sortilage. I opened my bradshaw at hazard and stuck a pin into the leaf. It made a hole in long statin. I was in Long Staten next day with my mother's weeds and a Gladstone bag, and barely a week to spare. My life trembled in the balance. 
Only a second marriage could save me from the maleficent baleful magnetism radiating from my first wife, who seemed to hypnotize her husbands away. Could I find another wife in a week? On that question hinged my whole existence. I adopted the name of O'Flanagan with brogue and beard to match. I met an old—I mean, I met Miss Fellowsmith, and married her before the registrar, as she has told you. Will you sit down and let me finish my story? Now you shall hear why I left you. Oh, but of course you have guessed it by now, Miss Fallowsmith. You are Mrs. Carsonet's sister. You had quarrelled years ago and lived apart and without corresponding with each other. When on our first wedding journey you blundered into saying something which revealed to me the fatal truth, I felt that death were indeed better. It was horrible, nefarious, beyond the dreams of a Caligula or a Sensi. I had married my undeceased wife's sister. At the first stopping place after that awful revelation, I jumped out and left you. You will admit it was the most honorable course. Don't sob on my breast, please. I only did my duty. Do sit down. There's a good creature. From the moment I left you, my life has been one long haunting terror. I had contemplated merely bigamy, but I had committed the unpardonable sin for which there can be no forgiveness in earth or in heaven. If to marry one's deceased wife's sister is so revolting an offence, what must it be to marry one's undeceased wife's sister? It is iniquity so dire and unspeakable that the very law has neglected to provide against it. The awfulness of this form of bigamy is increased by the fact that there is no repairing the evil. Your first wife dies, you cannot patch up the past, for you cannot legitimize your second wife since she is your deceased wife's sister. If, on the other hand, your second wife dies, the case is worse, for you remain actually married to your deceased wife's sister, having moreover inviled the law to solemnizing the marriage it prohibits. No, no, my dear Miss Fallowsmith, let me finish. Can you wonder that I dared not return to Macclesfield, lest my sin should find me out? How Eveson fared, I have never learnt. I trembled at my own shadow, thinking it a policeman on my track. My day was one long bolt from the blue-coated officials. I dare not leave the country, lest my perturbation should excite suspicion. There were always so many detectives about the docks. One safe place for me was London, the great wilderness of London, the one safe disguise that of a Scotchman. I have been an Irishman, I am an Englishman. As a Scotchman I should be comparatively secure. I bought a pair of goggles with plain glasses, for my sight is excellent, a snuff-box and a coloured handkerchief, and took the name of Andrew McGillicuddy. But it was too much trouble to speak like an anglicised Scotchman all day long. Besides, there was always the danger that I would forget the accent when my temper was ruffled. I hit upon the happy idea of speaking Scotch, so-called, only when I was in a passion or excited. Not only would the strain be less, but the genuineness so much more convincing. The most cultured speaker of a foreign tongue slips into his native idiom under excitement. With a little care I trained myself to talk Scotch whenever I felt angry or otherwise moved. The dodge succeeded perfectly. Not even you, Paul, have ever suspected me of being a Birmingham man. Plain Peter Parker. But I was yet far from easy. The fear of detection still made my life a nightmare. My disguise was not yet impenetrable. Something more novel and audacious was necessary to cover up my trail. What fresh red herring could I draw across my track? The idea was long in coming, but it came at last. 
I invented the Bachelors' Club. If I founded a society based on celibacy and misogyny, my guilt would be buried beyond the fear of exhumation. Who would ever dream of identifying Andrew McGillicuddy, president and founder of the Bachelors' Club, with Peter Parker, alias Patrick O'Flanagan, bigamist, married to his undeceased wife's sister? You double-disguised villain! I burst out, for I could contain myself no longer. So this was your petty design, eh? I rushed wildly at the epigrammatic tapestry and clawed at it in my rage. Out upon you, foul Crimea! Compact of perjury and falsehood! So you abused your friends and abused your office, but to cover up your trail. While I was trembling to acquaint you with the succession, you were yourself a marital monster, a double-eyed husband. There is not a single law or by-law of the club that you have not trampled upon it. Pardon me, Paul, replied the president, his voice quavering with emotion. This is too much. Call me a bigamist, if you will. But do not say I have trampled upon the code of the club, for it is a meanness I would shrink from. Am I not over thirty years of age? I am. Have I ever had a disappointment in love? I have not, for I have never loved. At first we used to ask the candidate, has he ever been married? And as I, the president, was more than married, my conscience used to wince a little. But I took advantage of your weak-minded striving for epigram to suggest a later form. Has he ever had a disappointment in love? You all snapped greedily at the bait, forgetting that the formula did not exhaust all the possibilities, but allowed a man who had married, but not for love, to slip through. Besides, you forget that I was never a candidate. The president's arguments left me breathless. But at first, at the foundation, I gasped. Well, what of that? inquired McGillicuddy. Did I ever tell a single syllable of untruth about it? Did anyone ever ask whether I was married? No. It was I who organized this club. It was I who broached the idea to Mandeville Brown, and he jumped at it eagerly, for it fell in with his humor. But I told him I would not allow him to cooperate with me unless he could satisfy my most searching inquiries as to the integrity of his bachelorhood and the wholeness of his heart. He submitted willingly to my examination, and I passed him with honors. It never struck him to examine his examiner. Even when I crushed his claim to originality by assuring him that another married man had previously remained in the club, it never struck him that it was I. We two sought out a third, and so on. My inquiries into each neophyte's antecedents were so minute and detailed that they never dreamt of asking for mine. My criticism was so severe, my scorn for the Benedict so unconcealed, that my power and position were never once questioned in the whole history of the Bachelors' Club. I never evaded the test, for I was never tried by them. Do me the justice, Paul, to admit that I had always striven with a veritable single-hearted zeal to uphold the dignity and the laws of our society, now, alas, moribund, and that I have been an impeccable president of the Bachelors' Club. I saw that he was right. How had I wronged this great and good man? Remorse rent my overcharged bosom. I fell at his feet and craved his pardon and his blessing. Rise, Paul, said the kindly president in tremulous accents. You are forgiven. And you are forgiven, my dear good Patrick, came suddenly from the lips of the woman whom we had both forgotten in the last exciting moments of McGillicuddy's monologue. May I speak now? 
"'Yes, Miss Fallowsmith, you may speak now,' said the President wearily. "'Then, Patrick, there is yet time to catch the Harwich boat.' "'Eh, lass,' said Peter Parker, so startled that he slipped her first into McGillicuddy. "'Yes, you are my husband now, if not when you married me. "'I was right, after all, when I claimed you as mine. "'I cannot be your husband.' "'You can and are. "'My sister is dead. "'She died soon after your leaving her. "'Your disappearance, taken in conjunction with the deaths of her three other husbands, excited suspicion. "'She was alleged to have made away with you. "'The investigation conducted in consequence so upset her that she died.' "'False, deceptive creature!' cried the President. "'And she will never wear my mother's weeds after all.' I had intended on leaving her a dying confession in these clothes, with fresh testamentary adjurations to wear them. But that is over now. He wept silently. Do not take on so, Patrick, said Miss Fallowsmith, with infinite tenderness as she passed a gentle hand over the remains of his hair. There is yet balm in Gilead. Is not your own Isabella here to bear your burdens and to soothe your sorrows? Come, love. "'Remember that if you have lost your first widow, "'you still have a widow left to you. "'I will wear those garments for you when you are no more. "'Oh, how gladly!' "'Peter Parker looked up. "'The tear in his eye was blent with a sunny gleam of hope. "'Then the rainbow faded away again into the mist. "'But they do not fit you!' "'Oh, yes, love, measure me, measure me,' "'she cried eagerly, placing his arm around her waist.' "'Your diameter is too extensive,' he said sadly. "'You will burst your cerements. I mean my mother's mourning.' "'No, no,' she cried ecstatically. "'If that is all, Patrick, do not spurn me as unfit to be your mate and widow. I can reduce my weight, dear. I will take daily exercise, darling. I will use anti-fat, love. Anything to make me worthy to be your widow.' Oh, if there is no other way, Patrick, I would willingly starve to make you happier, dearest. Only give me leave to try, and you shall see that I will fit them, my darling, my own and only love. Her eyes lit up in sublime abnegation. Her look was that of a saint. Oh, the merific workings of love, transforming the most prosaic clay into the similitude of an angel. But you are my deceased wife's sister faltered the president what is that love come let us catch the dutch boat other countries are not so cruel as ours let us continue our interrupted honeymoon to holland there we shall be made one but it's such an uncle off a night for the passage pleaded mcgillicuddy excitedly the night will be all right she replied optimistically tell willoughby to fetch me a cab groaned the president helplessly Deeply moved by the pathetic scene, I darted out, unlocked the outer door, and looked down the stairs. Neither Willoughby Jones nor any of the waiters was to be seen. I ran down into the twinkling square. The snow was still falling, and in tremendous flakes. I hailed a four-wheeler myself. The bridal pair were close on my heels. They jumped in. "'Liverpool Street, via Brunswick Square,' called out the President. "'I must get the Gladstone bag with my mother's weeds.' he explained to his intended widow. "'Drive for your life,' said Mrs. McGillicuddy, alias O'Flanagan, alias Parker. "'A sovereign if you catch the eight p.m.' I closed the door of the cab. "'Here, Paul,' 
said the president holding out something to me for a moment i thought he had mistaken me in his perturbation for the usual loafer and was handing me a copper but it was a bulkier object than my palm closed upon my snuff-box paul said mcgillicuddy with emotion i shall not want it now keep it as a memento a memento mary i said sadly yes said mcgillicuddy it is a common fate no man can escape all right isabella we're off now well good-bye paul to think that my first wife was dead all along and that if i had only read the macclesfield courier the bachelors club would never have been it was founded all in vain all in vain i echoed with a sigh the driver clucked and the horse advanced his foreleg and the president of the bachelors club was whirled off towards holland to marry his deceased wife's sister the snow fell the cab became a frosted wedding cake as it fleeted from my ken End of section twenty